Well, we all like having our memories jogged from time to time. You know, this past October, we celebrated one year here at the Brook. And uh, that was a sweet week or two for me as I reflected upon all that God has done here. And I'm blown away every single week by the people God has brought together, the people he continues to bring, the people who serve throughout the week in various capacities. We just had two amazing uh, dinners this past Wednesday at our two real community groups. We ate well. We hung out well. It was a great time. And, and those things just amaze me at how much God has done in a 12-month span. And, and it's good to remember and reflect from time to time. It's good to think back and have our memories jogged about where we were once were, where we're at today. Because oftentimes, reflection leads to reaction, doesn't it? It leads to you thinking about something, and it either brings a smile to your face or maybe sorrow, whatever it might be. But reflection is a helpful thing, though, because in the spiritual life, when Jesus comes in and changes somebody, it is a sweet thing to remember where you once were and now he has, where he has brought you to be. And that separation from past to present leads you to have a certain, certain kind of unexplainable and overwhelming joy that just affects your life and just rejuvenates and restores you afresh in a new way. Reflection leads to reaction. And we want to continue to retrace our steps even in the spiritual life. Today we're going to look at what God says our lives are like without him. And some of you might be able to think back to that and you say, man, that was a, that was a messy picture. Some of you might say, man, that was so long ago, I hardly remember it. And I pray that this reflection would jog your memory. And there's others of you here today and say, man, this is where I'm at right now. I don't know Jesus. This is my life. And what we're going to see is God's description is probably unlike what we ourselves would see ourselves as. But God sees with perfection. He sees our hearts beyond the surface. And he helps us, he reveals to us our great need for him. Because our, condi our condition is rough apart from Jesus. And when we come to see where he has brought his children, it causes our lives to respond. So I want to ask you, what influences your life today? What inspires your walk? What motivates you from point A to point B? And at the end of the day, for a child of God, for someone who's trusted in Jesus, there is no greater motivation than remembering where God has brought you from to where he has you now. And so what we want to do, we want to reflect upon his gracious work in our lives. And I pray that if you don't know him today, you would say, man, this is where I'm at, but I, I want Jesus now. I want to know where he could take me because I don't want to be where I'm at. And some of you spiritually might just feel like you're in a rut. I pray that God would awaken and revive you again in a fresh, fresh way. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to the book of Ephesians? And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the pew seats in front of you. And we would love for you to keep that if you don't own a Bible. That's our gift to you from the brook. As I mentioned, the flowers fade, grass withers away, but God's word endures forever. And so we want you to have God's word because it's like a sword. And it's sharp, it's sharp and it cuts into our hearts, but God does a wonderful work through it. We're in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. What page is that on, family? 634. In Ephesians chapter 2, this is a letter written by a man named Paul. He was a missionary, a guy who traveled around the world telling people about Jesus because Jesus himself had changed Paul's life. He wasn't always a man who loved Jesus. He was a man who once hated Jesus, but once Jesus grabbed him, he was never the same. And now he made it his ambition to tell others. 
And here, this letter, he's encouraging Christians in this region of, of, around a city called Ephesus and the outlining churches. And he wrote this letter intended for the churches to read it, copy it, and then pass it on to the other churches. And what he does here in chapter 2, he unpacks for them what their lives are like apart from Jesus. Because when we get down to verses 8, 9, and 10, he wants to elicit a response from them. But he doesn't want to just bring about a response with no backing. He wants to show them where they came from so that response is true. And in the first three verses, he lays out a picture of their situation as he calls them to remember where they came from. Verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What he paints here is a picture of life without Jesus. He paints the chaotic condition. He gives a destitute description of our pitiful plight, our sad state, the lost life that is like what we have without Jesus. And he says from the start, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I find it interesting in our day how these, like, zombie movement is, like, really big in our culture, isn't it? Like, all kinds of zombie movies and zombie books and all kinds of things. But what the Bible tells us here in a very provocative way is that we are actually the dead ones. You are the walking dead without Jesus. And Paul says here, this is our condition. And it's chaotic, it's destitute, it's pitiful, it's sad, it's lost. We are dead people without Jesus. And he says we're dead in trespasses and sins. Now the word trespasses means to to break a standard. You're going beyond. So if you see a a sign on a gate, it says no trespassing. When you go over that gate, you've, you've trespassed, you've broken the standard. Paul says that's what life is like without Jesus. We are standard breakers. We're dead in our trespasses and our sins. The word sin is to miss the mark, like a bow and arrow on a target. When you're off, you've missed the mark, and that's what sin is like. And Paul says that's what characterizes life without Jesus. That's the human condition. I think many of us would not say that, hey, we're dead people. We see, I'm moving, I'm living. But he's he's seeing with spiritual eyes and saying, you're a zombie. You're a dead man walking. You are, have the appearance of life, but without Jesus, there's nothing but death within you. And he says, this is how we once walked. Because sins, some people have classified it in a helpful way, could be sins of what they say, omission, and sins of commission. All right? A sin of omission is not doing the thing that we ought to do. That's omitting something. Like pleading the cause of the helpless. By failing to opening our, open our mouth, we are withholding. We are omitting what we ought to have done, and that's sin. So there's a sin of omission. But there's also sins of commission. Those are the things that we do that rebel against God. But sin is not just what we do or what we fail to do, but it is in our nature and who we are. He says here, in which you once walked. It was your lifestyle. It was your nature. It is what life is like without Jesus. We are dead. We sin by what we do. We sin by what we fail to do. And we sin because that's our nature. That's our being. That's a pretty sad picture here. 
We are born in sin. And some people in our, our day and age, they don't like to hear that. Culturally, that's not acceptable. You, you want to hear sometimes that, that we're basically good people and we've got to unleash that inner good. And, and that's just not the picture the Bible gives us. It says inside you're dead. There's a corpse. Now, right now in the nursery at the brook, there's a lot of cute babies, a lot of them. But if one takes a block from the other, you're going to see them take, go swinging sometimes. And you don't have to teach a kid to hit. They just innately know how to do that because they're depraved. You know, this little depraved bundle of joy. But that's the human condition from the time we are in our mother's womb, and that is what describes us as humanity. It is what we do, what we fail to do. It is who we are. So evil in this world is not by accident. There's not evil in this world because the stars aligned in a certain way. That's not what the Bible tells us. There's not evil in this world because I did something bad, now it's going to come back to me in a karma-like fashion. Nor is there evil in this world because the devil made me do it. I had a friend that once said the devil gets a bad rap. I thought that was a pretty interesting statement, right? What, what he's saying is, sometimes we just blame our actions. That, oh, the devil made me do it. The devil doesn't make people sin. People sin because they're sinful. And that's the picture we're given here. But what Paul goes on to do, he shows three different ways that this picture of our dead lives play out. And he paints it by the things that we follow. Three different things he tells us that the human condition apart from Jesus follow. The first one is here in verse 2. In which we're dead, in which we once walked in our sin, following the course of the world. So he says, apart from uh, Jesus, the human condition follows the world. It goes with the worldly worldviews. Now, the world here in mind is not the planet Earth, because we're not just rotating. So we're following the world in that sense we're rotating. But here he's talking about following the world in terms of the world's way of thinking. See, in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it says... The way of the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And these things characterize life in this world. And the great challenge with living in a world that is dead is that we become so accustomed to it that we don't notice that it's broken. It seems normal. Now, you've heard of the frog in the kettle illustration, right? If you throw a frog into boiling hot water, apparently it jumps right back out. I never tried it, all right? Whereas if you put the frog in a warm water and slowly boil it, it will boil alive because it doesn't notice right away. It so gradually happens that it kills the frog. And when we live in this world, the course of this world, the way it goes about things, begins to seem so normal that in our dead state, we have no way to even react against it. It just characterizes our being, and we are stuck in it. And in our day and age, there are many prevailing worldviews that seem so normal. And there's just three that come to mind for me. One in our culture in particular is this idea of tolerance, right? Now, tolerance is a very good thing when it's defined properly. But in our day, this cultural understanding of tolerance says that tolerance means you must agree with me. And if you disagree, then you're intolerant. But that's not, that's not how tolerance is. Tolerance is to say, hey, we disagree and we can still coexist. And yet what happens for those who follow Jesus, they are often labeled as intolerant because they are exclusive in their claims. We believe that Jesus says he is the only way to the Father. But in our culture, that's labeled intolerant to say there's one way. But that's what the Bible teaches. So a cultural worldview 
is one that tolerance means you must agree with me, and if you don't agree with me, then, you're, then you must be outcast. A, a second prevailing worldview in our culture is a redefining of things that have been set in stone in God's word, in particular marriage and sexuality. We see in our own day how marriage has been redefined. It's no longer what the Bible teaches. See, the Bible shows that marriage is between one man and one woman for all time. That's God's design for marriage. And yet a redefinition of marriage says that marriage can be between one man and another man or one woman and another woman, and marriage is not for all time, but it can be broken for any little thing. And so this is how our culture has redefined God's standard, but that's not God's standard. And yet it seems so normal in our society where tolerance and redefining is so accepted because we live in a world that is dead in sin and trespasses. You know, a third prevailing mindset we see in our day, in our world, is this idea of pragmatism, that whatever works, you do it. No matter how wrong or immoral it might be, if it feels good, if it works out, then go right ahead and do what it is. And see, the problem with these three prevailing mindsets is they take what is good and it twists it. See, God is a God who's very patient with people. And this idea of tolerance, it's appropriate for us to live life with people who think differently than us. But when it's twisted, tolerance is redefined and what God has made to be true now becomes wrong. And the same thing with marriage and sexuality. God made marriage. God made sex. And I've said it here, God makes climax in everything. God has designed sex and sexuality, and he is the maker of it. And so when, the, when, when our culture redefines things, it's taking what God has made to be good and twists it. But God has made marriage between one man and one woman for all time. And pragmatism, God has made us people with different personalities and, and preferences and artistic abilities, and variety is wonderful. But there is a place where our, what's practical can become sinful. What feels right could be wrong. And when there's no standard, that gets breached. And what Paul has laid out for us here is when we are dead in our sins apart from Jesus, we just follow along with the course of the world. And that's the human condition apart from Jesus. But he gives us a second description. Not only do we follow the course of the world, but he says this, that we follow the course of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And you're probably wondering, like, what does that mean? What does it mean to follow the prince of the power of the air? Well, the word prince uh, gives the idea of a ruler, someone who leads, someone who's, who is in majesty, someone who has power. And it's interesting how Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of this world. And the air is often referred to as the heavenly places. And we see just the next few chapters down in Ephesians, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, in the air. And so what Paul is saying here is when we are apart from Jesus, not only do we follow the world, but we're actually following the prince of the power of the air who is Satan. We're following his lead, his agenda. Satan has no greater joy than to see you separated from God. Jesus says in John 10 that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy the sheep. 
And so what Paul is saying here is, apart from Jesus, we just follow the world. We follow Satan's lead. We're like his disciples, following his step by step. Not that the devil makes us sin, but to be sure the devil wants you to sin because sin separates us from God. So he says, we follow the course of this world. We follow Satan. And in verse 3, he says this. Uh, let me back up actually into verse 2. We follow the, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. By the way, let me note there, the sons of disobedience. Like, we are now children of rebellion is what it's saying. <laughs> we, are, we are separated. I mean, this is, this is a sad picture. And he goes on to say, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He said, we're just following the passions of our flesh. So now we follow the world, we follow Satan, and we just follow our own passions and desires. And the book of Judges is a picture of God's people's one of the darkest days. Because what it says is, in, in, a, in this cycle of rebellion against God, there's an indictment there in the book of Judges. And it says this, and there is those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what Paul is saying, apart from Jesus, we just do what seems right to us. But the problem is because we're dead, what seems right is not good. Because we're lawbreakers, what seems right is to continue breaking. And we become so self-consumed with what we want, and this is the human condition. You know, in Greek mythology, there's a god named Narcissus. And the, the mythology says this, that Narcissus was walking by the water one day, and he saw his reflection in the water. And he liked what he saw and became so enamored with his own reflection that he became obsessed with himself until it finally consumed him. And that's where we get our idea of narcissism, when someone is so self-focused. And, and that's really what Paul is saying. This is humanity without Jesus. And we just follow the world, the flesh, and the devil without any questioning. It's like when you're on a road trip and you're in a foreign city and you got to get somewhere, you use your GPS. And if you're like me, there are times where you're just listening to the commands without really knowing where you're going. And you end up at your location and you think, man, I don't remember where I turned to get here. I just listened to her tell, Siri tell me, you know, make a left at the, at the street or whatever it was. And you just, you're like, man, if, if I didn't have that to get back, I'd be lost because I just was listening to commands. I was following it. I wasn't paying attention. That's how it is apart from Jesus. Just don't pay attention. We're the frog in the kettle. It seems so normal. And the most saddest thing here is that Paul says, because of this, we were by nature children of wrath. Not because of what we've done, but because of our nature. Children of wrath. Whose wrath? It's God's wrath. See, God hates sin. And he's a just God to judge sin. And when sinful people stand before a holy God, apart from Jesus, we are going to receive God's wrath, which is separation from him for all of eternity in hell. That's God's wrath and judgment. So we take down our trip down memory lane here, thinking about what human life is apart from Jesus. It's a chaotic scene. It's a pitiful plight. It's a sad state. This is our lost life without Jesus. Now, 
boy, if this passage ended there, just pack it up, eat, drink, and die, because eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. <laughs> but there's a fourth verse, family. You see, Paul says, remember where you came from. Remember how you were a disciple of the world, of the flesh, of the devil. Remember how you were a dead man walking. Why? Because when you then reflect, you go from remembering to reflecting upon God's grace, it's going to move you. So don't only remember where you came from, but reflect on what God has done. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He didn't leave us. In death, family. He just didn't leave us there. This contrast with the word but is an amazing statement. Because as you were like this, but God did this. I had a professor in college whose uh, father-in-law was from, out of, from another country. And he was a preacher. And he, he had a preaching series called The Great Butts of the Bible. And without, that doesn't really translate into English too well. But this is one of the greatest but God, look who it starts with. Not, but you turned from your sin. No. But you decided to change. No. But God, being rich in mercy. Mercy is withholding what is deserved. We deserve wrath. God's mercy turns it away. But God, rich in mercy has made us alive together with him. He's made us alive. See, we never stand up here at the brook and say, do good and be better. That's an empty thing. This is what drives me nuts about so many television preachers. Do this and do that, and your life will be great, and you're going to be happy. But you can't do when you're dead. Dead people don't do anything. They're dead. And Paul doesn't say, go and do and be good. See, Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist, says, moralism seeks to make dead people good, but the gospel, the good news of Jesus, makes dead people live. That's change. This is what God does. Blows me away. You know, a lot of how-to books are prominent in our day. I read one of them. It's a how-to book on the zombie survival guide. Kid you not. Complete from the living dead. That's what it says. One of the chapters talks about how to organize before they rise. Another one is to get up the staircase and then destroy it. It's a good principle. Make, make sure you know that. Then another principle says no place is safe. There's only safer. But I guarantee you it doesn't talk about how to make zombies live. God makes dead people There's no how-to with that. It's all God. But God, being rich in mercy, why? Because of the great love with which he loved, of, loved us even when we were dead. God didn't look down a porthole of eternity and say, man, she is a good person. Let me save her. He doesn't look down this telescope and says, look at that guy. He's a good guy. Let me save him. No, it says, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. We've been united with Jesus. Jesus died, we died. Jesus buried, we were buried. Jesus raised to life, we are raised to life. Jesus seated in the heavens, we are seated in the heavens. Romans 6 says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that, this is it, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We are united with Jesus through faith in him. Remember where you came from, but reflect upon what God has done. What do we learn about God's grace? We realize his grace is a reflection of his mercy and love. His grace is directed to us even when we were dead. His grace makes dead people live. His grace unites us with Jesus. His grace in our lives continues for eternity. Let's look here in verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, not in this life, but in the next life, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Family, the best is yet to come. And he's saying, you are united with Jesus. God's grace in our lives continues for eternity. God's grace is the source of our salvation. What a transition. Verses 1 through 3. Drive a nail in my coffin. Verses 4 through 7, let me live, God. Let me just wallow in your grace. Lavish it upon me. God, now may I respond. Because we remember our sin, we reflect upon his grace, now we must respond, knowing what God has done. Today, if you're here today and you've never responded to this good news, Maybe you are aware now of your sinful condition. You're saying, I'm the dead one walking. That's me. I follow this world. I follow my desires. I follow Satan's lead. Well, look what God has done even when you were dead. But that's not applied to everybody. It's only applied to those who trust in Jesus. And this is where we get verses 8 and following. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Our remembrance and reflection will lead to a response, and the only response that saves people is by putting our faith in Jesus. It's not trying to be good now, trying to do good things, like, oh, that's great what Jesus has done. Let me do good things now. No, you've got to trust in Jesus. You're not saved by good works. He says it there, not by works, because if we do it by works, we can boast in it. But he said, look, I've been saved because I'm good. I'm going to heaven because of me. And we continue to look in the water at our own reflection, consumed with ourselves. But God says, no, don't look at the water. Look at me. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And just before someone says, well, the faith is mine, God, he said, no, and that's not of yourself. It is a gift of God. So even the faith that you're saved by, that's not even your own faith. God gave you the faith. It's all his grace in action. 
But he didn't say then, give up on doing good works. No, we're saved by God's grace in order to do good works. We're not saved by works. Big difference, but an important emphasis here. See, he goes, he goes on to say in verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's not saying throw good works out. He's saying good works won't save you, but when you're saved, you will do good works. Why? Because you're a new person. You who were dead are now alive. You who were a rebel are now a son of God, a daughter of God. So therefore, do good works, not because it makes you accepted by God, but do good works because you love God. And because what he's done in you, how he's changed you. You know, Masterpiece Theater is a popular show that's been around for many years. And they take classic works and dramatize them for television. What Paul says here is that we are God's masterpiece, his workmanship. He says we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. Yes, God created all of humanity. He spoke the world into existence in six days. Yes, everyone's been created by God, but only those who through faith in Jesus have been recreated by God. And when we are recreated, the old you is gone, the new you has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. He's a new creation. And so God wants us to do good works. So when we remember where we come from, when we reflect upon what God has done, we now respond by saying, God, all of me, you can have it. Take it. I want to do good works to honor you, to bring you glory, that others might see what you've done in me. And when I think about good works, I thought to myself, what does that entail? And there's a number of things we can say and do a lot of examples we can give. But here are just a few. See, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus changes us, he changes us to love people. And only God can help us genuinely love people, even the most unlovely of people. But God can do it. So good works shows itself in loving our neighbor, but it also shows itself in caring about the things that God cares about most. Whatever God loves, love it. Whatever God wants you to do, do it. Whatever God doesn't want you to do, don't do it. These are good works. This is the life that God leads us to. This is how he changes us. See, some churches might teach that we're saved by good works. You say so many prayers, so many Our Fathers, so many Hail Marys, so many different things. And then God might accept you, but that's not what God says here. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. But Ephesians 2 says we're saved to do good works. And James 2 says faith without works is actually dead. So if we're not living out this Christian life, then the chances are we're still zombies. We haven't been saved. See, those whom Jesus changes, he saves and he changes our lives. So true faith works it out, works out, lives out its life. See, our boast won't be in ourselves. Our boast is in God who has changed us. Reflection leads to reaction, Brooke family. Taking a trip down this memory lane could be scary for some of us because some of you might say, this is where I'm at, but there's no there's no salvation. There's no Jesus having come and changed your life. 
because you haven't put your faith in him. And let this trip down this lane lead you now to respond. If you don't know him, well, today you say, Jesus, I put my faith in you. And to put your faith in Jesus, it means to acknowledge that you're a sinful person. It means to say, I acknowledge, though, that when Jesus died, my sin was nailed on that cross with him. And now I could turn from my sin. The Bible calls that repentance. And now I walk to honor him with my life. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. And so if you're a dead man or dead woman walking today, would you respond by faith? And if you are a child of God today already, you've trusted in Jesus, and maybe you forgot where you came from, let this trip here remind you what life would be like without Jesus. And some of you say, man, that, that life is all too fresh still. Whatever the case is, let it lead you to worship him. Say thank you, God. God, I just want to please you. I just want to live for you. I want to do good works because you're awesome, God. And I want people to see you in me. That's what a life changed does. What motivates your life, family? What instructs your steps? What moves you each day? Is it the mighty grace of God in your life? Or is it something altogether different? See, the world tells us that your value is in who you know. But the gospel says that you can know Christ and be united with him. See, the world tells us that your value is in what you have. And the gospel tells us that we have the immeasurable riches with Christ. The world tells you your value is in what you've done. And the gospel says Christ suffered for you. He did it. He died. He was buried. He was raised. He was seated. And you, united with him, can enjoy those things. See, the gospel makes dead people live. It makes sons of disobedience into children of God. The gospel makes followers of the world, the flesh, and the devil into followers of Jesus. The gospel makes powerless slaves into spirit-empowered Christians. The gospel makes those who walk in sin to now walk in good works. The gospel takes what is broken and makes it into a masterpiece. And this is all available to you, family. Not because of what you've done, because of what God has done. Someone wrote this poem that kind of encapsulates this message. It says, O long and dark the stairs I trod with stumbling feet to find my God, gaining a foothold bit by bit, but then slipping back and losing it, never progressing, striving still with weakening grasp and fainting will, bleeding to climb to God while he serenely smiled, unnoting me. Then came a certain time when I loosened my hold and fell thereby, down to the lowest step my fall, as if I had not climbed at all. You ever feel that? And while I lay despairing there, I heard a footfall on the stair. And in the same path where I dismayed, faltered and fell and lay afraid. And lo, when hope had ceased to be, my God came down the stairs to me. 
is what God does. As we lay there in death, he says, you can have life. And would that life lead you, family, to Jesus today for the first time? Or perhaps let it lead you to walk with him in a fresh and reviving way. This is the gospel the Bible says. This is the good news of what God has done. And we're grounded in this. We are rooted like no other tree for God's glory. Let's pray. Almighty God, what can we say, God? You you came to our rescue, Lord. You came and saved us when we had nothing else. And so we are filled with gratitude. And God, if there are any here today who don't know Jesus, God, we don't want them to continue on as daughters and sons of disobedience. We want them to know you, God. Because right now, apart from you, God, they're objects of your wrath. But they can be called sons and daughters through faith in Jesus. And I pray that today would be that day. Thank you, God, for coming down the stairs to us. Amen. We talk about taking a trip down memory lane. And you know, Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, told his disciples, don't forget me. Don't forget what I'm about to do. And one thing we do here at the Brook, which I'm so grateful for, churches around the world do this. Some weekly, we do it once a month. We celebrate what's called the Lord's Supper. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, Jesus had a meal with his disciples. And in that meal, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he says, that's my body, broken for you. And he took a glass of wine and drank. He said, this is my body, this is my blood poured out for you. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, as he led them to drink and eat. And so what we do here, as we take a trip down memory lane, we know that this good news, it would not happen were Jesus not to die for us. So what we're going to do now in a few moments, I'm going to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you believe that his body was broken for you and his blood was spilled for you and that on that cross you died with him and in his resurrection you were brought to life with him and if you have turned from sin to live for him, we want you to come forward, take a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice and eat it in remembrance of Jesus. Jesus, uh, Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians, as much as we eat of the bread and drink of the juice, we proclaim his death until he comes because Jesus is coming back one day and so we're going to do this until he returns or until we go see him face to face and as we do it we remember his grace we reflect about what God has done and let your prayer as you eat be to respond to honor him so, th- so at this time I want you to stand with me um, and uh, I'm going to invite the worship team would you guys come forward Again, if you have trusted in Jesus, we ask you in a moment to come forward. If today that's not your your faith, if you have not trusted in Jesus, we ask that you would not take of the bread and the cup. Because Jesus said this is for his followers. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we ask that you would just watch, that you would begin to search your own heart. And perhaps even at this moment, 
God stirs you to trust in him, let this be the first time you celebrate the Lord's Supper as a son or a daughter. We'd love to celebrate that with you. So let me pray. And then as you're ready, would you come forward and we take the bread and cup. Almighty God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ. And so may we now, as we take of the bread and the cup, let it be a celebration because we are found in him. In Jesus' name.